Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, a centrifugal part of the SpecGram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Back again with me in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins Conference Room is owner of several shopping center maps, Trey Jones. Hey, everybody. To his left, the first person ever to bowl a perfect game while totally unconscious. Three weeks after becoming the seventh person ever to bowl a perfect game while totally unconscious, Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from a shoeshine stand in Tallahassee, Florida, Bill Spruill. Hey. And also back for his second consecutive LDLNL, Mr. Glowering Inferno himself, Gabe Olson. Hello. So, Gabe, why would you wait almost three whole weeks to reprise your successful and lucrative guest appearance on Language Made Difficult? Well, I've been asking and asking to be back on again, and uh, Trey had uh, blocked me, I think, from Gmail, but I think they finally let me come back on again. (laughs) Well, we will certainly install better locks next time, but thanks for joining us, Gabe. (laughs) And here we go with more lies, Dan, lies, and linguistics. Take it away, Trey. All right, you guys, everybody knows the drill. We've got three language-related items. Two of them are true. One is false. You guys have to figure out which is which, and then we'll discuss. All right, our theme this week is random weirdness. All right, number one. In Ainu, the language of an indigenous people of Japan, there used to be a sacred word for Grandmother Earth, known only to certain tribal elders. But it was lost in the 1923 Great Kanto earthquake when all the old men who knew it died at once. Number two. In Vanuatu, the Longana people purchased the related dialect of their neighbors, the Lolovoli, who then had to acquire a new form of speech. Number three. In the Indian language Toda, you can't say your own name. When you introduce yourself, you have to get someone else to say your name. All right, David, you did so good going first last time. Why don't you go first again? (laughs) You cannot fool me, Trey. I have you figured out this time. Okay. First of all, it's very, very sad, but also easy for a whole bunch of people who know something to die in an earthquake. That happens all the time. So I can see number one being true. The word is gone that we don't have any record of it, even for your LDLNL fact, because everybody who knew it died. All right. I'm going to say number one is true. Number three is also true. It's true because for some reason, even though it was the one I heard most recently, it's the one I can't remember. Uh, What what was it? Say it again. (laughs) You can't introduce yourself in the language (laughs) Toda. You you can't say your own name, so you have to get someone else to introduce you. Oh, yeah. yeah, Come on. I mean, that's that's also true of English. Uh, I mean, if, if you're going to the right parties anyway. I mean, you could certainly go up and introduce yourself, and then you can get shown the door. No, 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 no. you you got to have somebody who's much more famous, you know, have their arm around you and say, this guy! <laughs> yeah, so, okay, number three is true. Number two is false, and I think that this is primarily because... Okay, so it's the Vanuatu, and they, they purchased a language of the Lola Voli, did you say? Yep. You made up all of those words. Even the English <laughs> words, you made up all of those words. They're all fake. Number two is false. One and three are true. I have spoken. All right. Keith, why don't you go next? Okay. Well, I have to disagree with David. Oh, no. It's contractual, I think. But anyway... <laughs> The Lola Voli. No, it wasn't the Lola Voli. Who was it? Who purchased the language? The Longana. The Longana purchased the language. Right. The Lola Voli actually didn't want to keep using their language. They wanted to learn English, and they needed government assistance to do it. And the only way they could figure out to qualify for government assistance was if they were lacking a language. So they tricked the Longana people into purchasing their language so they'd be lacking one and need government assistance. So that's true. (laughs) That's too plausible. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, the Indian language Toda, that, that's half true and half false. I guess I'm going to go with false there. No, I'm going to go with true there. You can't say your own name. 
Of course, you can always use Hindi, Hindi or Bengali or Devanagari or some other Indian language <laughs> to say your name. So you don't actually have to have someone else introduce you. Okay, that one's false. That one's false because you don't have to have someone else say your name because you can say it yourself in some other language. <laughs> so that must mean that the Ainu uh, loss of the word for Grandmother Earth, which is the irony of the greatest proportions, isn't it? That the guardians of the word for Mother Earth were killed by an earthquake brought on by Mother Earth. Well, there it is. That must be true. <laughs> Well, see, because Mother Earth was angry, they found her word, and she had to take it back. Okay. <laughs> uh, Gabe, would you like to go next, or would you like to let Bill go? Uh, sure, I'll go ahead. Okay. First of all, I know that two is true. I know this one is true because something very similar happened in Canada many years ago when the, the French here were fighting against the English, and they were short on money. They sold the French language back to France, and they were left with the kind of garbled French that they speak now, which no one actually really understands. <laughs> so I think number two is definitely true. The lawyers aren't going to allow us to publish this version of the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is true, true stuff. So I... And number one in Ainu, or Ainu, did you say Ainu? It's, 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 it should be Ainu. I don't know why yeah. you said that. Well, I said it in English instead of in Ainu. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I have to agree with, I can't remember who said it, but the, because of the incredible irony, it just has to be true. So I know this one is true. But then I know that number three is false because I believe this, uh, that the linguist who reported this, that in the Indian language, Toda, you can't say your own name. When you introduce yourself, you have to get someone else to say your name. I know that one was false because I know he was dealing with an informant who was actually just very forgetful and had to keep finding other people to say his name. <laughs> so, <laughs> that one is debunked. That one is completely false. So. Just, just like Snoop Dogg. Huh? Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bill. Okay. I'm going to say number one is true based mainly on just the fact that I know it's a very small language community. And so, unfortunately, any kind of disaster at all has a high chance of eliminating everybody who knows something. I'd like to say number two is false because it sounds so bizarre, but that also makes me suspect it's true <laughs> because it sounds so bizarre. <laughs> And so I'm going to go with that. I could see a scenario, for example, where you use a slightly different dialect than the next people over, and they find your dialect incredibly annoying, and they pay you to start pronouncing things the way they do, so you'll stop <laughs> annoying them. Okay. There are a number of mid-Atlantic states near New Jersey that have apparently... <laughs> <laughs> proposed that type of financial arrangement. <laughs> so that leaves me with trying to find some reason why number three could be false. I can more easily see a situation where you're the only person who's allowed to say your name. <laughs> because that's your name and somebody could do something if they used your name and it's your property. And after all, they're not paying you to use it. I'm going to say number three is false. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's start with number three. Gabe was so serious when he said the thing about number three being debunked. So just in case that's actually true, I'd like to remind everyone that the rules are we're not looking for the right answer. It's like Trivial Pursuit. We're looking for the answer on the back of the card. Uh, number three <laughs> is, in fact, according to my sources, true. Yes. Don't get too excited. I doubt it. Number two, where the language was purchased from the, the related dialect of the, of the neighbors was purchased, that is also true. Oh, I will find you, Trey. Unbelievable. What is your source, Trey? That one was sufficiently weird that I went and looked it up and actually found the original reference uh, in Google Books. So, 
Well, uh, that one's that true. Reliable source. Good. The incorrect one is the first one. I just completely made that up out of whole cloth. Oh, and you didn't even know how to pronounce the language name. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so wait, wait, wait. So I'm sorry. If I was, if I'm keeping track correctly, then did we all get it wrong? Did you just get a point, Trey? Not only did I get a point, I got a clean sweep. Oh. Everyone got it wrong, yep. Has that ever happened before? Uh, yes. Oh, <laughs> so, the, so the tie is broken. Do you, do you realize what this means, Keith? Trey just pulled ahead of us. That's very depressing. I won't sleep tonight. Oh. <laughs> and the fact that you just made it up, too. You didn't even change a true fact slightly. Oh, God. Ah. I, uh, my goodness. And this one was an honest win. I mean, back a long time ago when he he won a sweep when we were still recording these on those wax cylinder things, he did it by moving a form mount on one of his vowels, which, you know, we all thought was cheating. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Hey, I think the sad thing, David, is that I think we're trailing the guests, too. Aren't the guests about three for six now? Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, what are, what are we? What's the percentage? We're six for Less what? than. Six for 14. Oh, jeez. So. We're actually approaching chance. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there's a, there's no other way to say it, Trey. You are you have been added to my enemies list. Uh, congratulations, you just now company. Just now. Just now. <laughs> Is that one of your choices on Facebook? <laughs> Oh, yeah, it should be. No, it, it means Trey's name is going to become some sort of awful word in Dothraki. Ooh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I like that idea. Well, thanks for joining us again, Gabe. I hope you enjoyed your time. <laughs> Thank you kindly. Uh, any Any parting shots at the four of us? <laughs> I don't think I have anything else. Oh, thank goodness. All right. Well, <laughs> next up we have some language news, but first a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is not brought to you by Rattenfängerstadt Hameln. To be frank, the people of Rattenfängerstadt Hameln have got better things to do than to support a linguistics journal. Now for some language news. Hey, uh, you know boring people? People that just keep talking about things you're not interested in and won't stop? They use words like fiduciary and implementize and factory standards and reformatting and refurbishment and constitute and Trey Jones. You know, fuddy-duddies. Uh, apparently, we routinely drown such people out with an inner voice that produces, and I'm quoting the article's wording here because it's so cool, more vivid speech. <laughs> How's that for cool? So if you hear someone droning on, you kind of spice things up in your brain with kittens, hot rides, bananas, and explosions. Does this mean we never really hear what anyone says and that you know, we're all individual planets kind of swirling around in a cosmic and infinite universe of isolated nothingness? Keith, fill us in. Um, uh, what, what was the question? <laughs> Sorry, sorry. No, I think I heard the question. Actually, honestly, I had trouble reading this article because I kept finding myself reciting the charge of the light brigade and things like that instead of paying attention. <laughs> it's pretty much not likely to be true, I think. We all just listen. Where do they get these ideas? I, I don't know where they get it. I don't know. I don't know. Because I think this explains why we have repeat listeners on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they're rewriting our droning blatherings into particularly witty repartee, and they think we're awesome. <laughs> or maybe that's just me listening to me in my own head. I don't know. Sounds likely. It sounds likely either way. <laughs> 
It does explain a number of phenomena, for example, like why when I give a test, my students tell me I said things that are far different from what I remember saying in the lecture. (laughs) (laughs) It also explains the unusual success of both Henry Kissinger and Ben Stein. (laughs) (laughs) But Professor Spruill, you, you said that English doesn't have allomorphs. You said English had alligators. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> like, well, it, it does, but not in the language. That would be awesome because then alligator would be self-referential. An alligator of alligator would be crocodile. Oh, that's that a makes point. sense. That's a point. <laughs> I think that should be on your next test. Yeah, well, you can tell the crocodiles because the front end of the morpheme is sharper. <laughs> <laughs> I think for anybody who's been a university teacher, this is a bit of a dangerous or depressing claim, right? Because right. we've all had that experience. Of watching our students rewrite our talk, <laughs> which we put a lot of time into preparing. Here's one thing I found interesting. So check out this quote. This is a direct quote from the article. Changes to oxygen levels in the blood demonstrated that activity in areas of the brain's auditory cortex, which deals with human speech, increased when people listen to monotonously spoken direct speech quotes. Scientists speculate that this is likely to reflect the existence of an inner voice. Yeah, you could say that. Or, and this is what I think, this is what I take away. You could say that this means that monotonous speech is actually more exciting to us. Then non-monotonous speech. There's no, so much no. activity going on in the brain. No, no. See, I think the key thing is there. Scientists speculate. They need to stop doing that because what it really is is it's the upwelling of the inner voice screaming, "Make it stop! This is so freaking boring!" And then suppressing that. You know, not actually saying that out loud. I just figured it was akin. You know, you're, you're hearing this long, boring speech, and it is a bit like starting to drown. So you just start breathing faster. <laughs> You know, it's funny. Whenever I read the words scientists speculate in a popular journal article, what I actually read is the writer of this article speculates based on what he or she thinks he understands from what he, what the scientist said. Exactly. It's science journalistic jargon for I'm about to make stuff up. <laughs> Now, wait a minute. We now have to accept the possibility, though, that it is, in fact, what the journalist actually heard (laughs) after the scientist started explaining the study. After the boring scientist started to explain Uh, the study. Right. Could actually be that inner voice, right? Uh, And that that actually explains the entire history of journalism. Everything that we're getting is just the product of uh, these panhandlers' inner voices. Did I just make a callback to a joke that wasn't from this podcast? (laughs) Quite possibly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, despite the fact that I think this is a crock of crap, it actually is consistent with the linguistics as a discipline. I think we've actually grammaticalized this idea of monotony reduction because our brains have to, you know, jazz up things like particle and split infinitives and onto genetic ritualization to sound sexy and exciting. And we come up with these kind of, I don't know, fanciful terms like pied piping and Island constraints and sea command and government binding and the great foul shift and the myoelastic aerodynamic theory of phonation. That's a real thing. Look it up. Oh dear. <laughs> and they all sound much more interesting. They all sound much more interesting than they really are. <laughs> We've grammaticalized the monotony reduction. Well, just a nitpick, that's lexicalizing, not grammaticalizing. Grammaticalizing would be somehow if we could, you know, if, if there was some sort of a boring agreement that appeared on verbs or something like that. 
<laughs> I think it's a, it's a medical grammaticalization in, in the field of linguistics where we take that and we, we sort of externalize that. Uh, I was using grammaticalization in a, in a metaphorical sense. And we exter- or did you say medical sense? That's, no, that's metaphor. metaphor. <laughs> See, I heard medical too because I think that's more exciting Interesting. probably. Yeah. So, so I think what happens here is that what you're saying is we start underlyingly with a boreem <laughs> and then the boreem, of course, undergoes certain alternations before it's shown, uh, you know, in spell out. Uh, and that's what happens. Uh, Spec Cat is back again. We're boring her. <laughs> there is an interesting potential take on this that has tiny bits of actual linguistics in it, although dramatically badly conceptualized <laughs> by me, which is the hearers are expecting a certain information density in what they're hearing, <laughs> right? They're expecting language to provide information in sort of roughly constant density chunks. And the monotony of something gives the impression that the information density is too low. Mm -hmm. And so the listener is actually given a range of possibilities about what you just heard. Your brain is picking the more surprising ones because it's assuming, well, no one would have information density that low. Clearly, that's only true for people who've never been to a five-day seminar on anything. (laughs) It's a Gricean response right there. Uh, All right. So what I thought was if they can measure this thing, if they can actually measure it, then they can do a reality show based on it. So we have the voice. Now what we need is the inner voice. And (laughs) what happens is a panel of judges listen to somebody while they're being spoken to in a monotonous voice. And all they can do is monitor their fMRI. And so then based on what they see in the fMRI, if they like what they see, then they can press the button and their chair swivels around so they can see who the very next rising audiobook reading star is going to be. Because obviously if they could take monotonous speech and jazz it up in their brain enough, then when they read something, it won't won't sound as monotonous. Or is the gold make it sound monotonous? Now I'm getting confused. Which one's better? Uh, in other words, is it better to not speak monotonously so people pay attention to what you're saying? Or is it better to speak monotonously so that they have a more exciting experience in their head? as they're jazzing up your own speech. Okay, so you have a logical fallacy there. Just because it's more interesting than your boring speech doesn't mean it's more interesting than your less boring speech. Ah, but it's good enough for television. Yes. I think in general you would want to use your jazzed-up version for an audiobook, except possibly for How to Cure Your Insomnia in 10 Minutes a Day, (laughs) which you would want to read as monotonously as possible, clearly. In conclusion... Perfunctory, satisfactory, rumor, gossip, tintinnabulation, vertebrate, comfortable, monarchy, regiment, wanderlust, trickling. Um, anyway, get ready for controversy, because now we're moving on. Kyle Jasmine and Daniel Casasanto have stirred up a whole hornet's nest by claiming that words typed entirely with the right hand on a QWERTY keyboard are so-called happy words. As an article in Wired explains, Jasmine and Casasanto looked at a thousand word indexes in English, Spanish, and Dutch, both before and after the invention of the QWERTY keyboard and discovered that those typed entirely with the right hand have more positive associations than those typed with the left hand. And this, of course, was just the beginning when this you know, article kind of uh, hit the fan. Shortly after the article got some press, Mark Lieberman of Language Log took the original authors to task and showed that what effect there was was not statistically significant. Later, Peter Dodds found the same thing. Then the authors responded, and oh my, did they respond. Here's a quote I'd like to pull out for you from their response. 
We have demonstrated here that the claims we made in our paper are well supported by the data, and that hasty reanalyses of our data on language log are uninterpretable. Yet this does not change the fact that Lieberman and others who've taken him at his word have published their critiques which, despite being almost totally unsupported, have potentially career-damaging allegations. Meow! <laughs> uh, thankfully, we here at Language Made Difficult are a team of serious scientific researchers, and everything we say must be taken as fact and doesn't even need to be checked. So let's start this thing off right. Bill, give us some perspective on this matter. Well, first of all, they undermined their claim that Lieberman was incomprehensible by then reacting to his claims. If they had been <laughs> incomprehensible... <laughs> It would have actually been difficult to do that. Mm. In their support, although they did not point this out, I think Lieberman failed to take into account the um, obvious beneficial associations that people would have with the right side of the keyboard because it's got both the semicolon and the backslash key on it. Mm -hmm. And those are the two most beloved marks in the English punctuation system. So, <laughs> you know, it's kind of hard to deny that that kind of a fact. <laughs> so you think it's an association. It's not the use of, uh, well, it's a two-step thing. So it's because the right hand is associated with beloved punctuation, anything else associated with typing with the right hand is going to also be beloved. <laughs> hmm. Is that what you're telling us, Bill? I think it's just that warm, fuzzy aura surrounding semicolons and backslashes, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> You could test this by resampling just left-handers because the original mm. authors were saying that it was based on fluency and so people are right-handed are more fluent typers with the right hand. And I don't know if you guys know this, but left-handers on average die six years earlier than right-handers. And wow. they're four times more likely to die in car accidents and six times more likely to die from other accidents. And I think this may be a contributing factor because if their polarity on positive and negative words is reversed because of their handedness and their left-handed fluency, then they go around and the righties are choosing happy words for good things and unhappy words for bad things. But the lefties are getting subtle clues all the time that the world hates the things they love and loves the things they hate. <laughs> The article specifically says, though, that the left-handed people have the same reactions as the right-handed people. Well, see, I couldn't read that because it was kind of boring, so my brain made up something that was more interesting. Sorry. <laughs> or it was incomprehensible, one or the other. Oh, yeah. my goodness. My immediate reaction was uh, basically easy or nothing. I hate having to use my right hand when typing. I can never find O, I, or U. And often if I'm, if I'm going for P, which is, you know, being hit with the pinky, I often end up hitting the left bracket. It just drives me nuts. Well, I was kind of puzzled because the, the whole back and forth between the scholars here seemed to revolve around the question of whether the conclusion and the methodology in this research were actually true, you know, whether this was actually a point of discovering some fact about the world. But that's not really the, how we judge things in linguistics, is it? So in linguistics, we judge things based on whether your hypotheses and your analysis are elegant and simple. And most mm. critically, is Occam's razor satisfied? That's our real tool for evaluating work in linguistics. So the question is not whether this effect is true, but whether it's the simplest possible explanation. And uh, nobody mentioned that at all. So I'm true. thinking that we here should just come up with, uh, let's just discuss a minute, is that actually the simplest possible explanation? The one the, the authors gave. Uh, 
Now, wait a minute. The simplest, you, you've been doing linguistics like with language and, you know, Chomsky's a central figure and the same linguistics I've been doing, right? Because I don't think Occam's <laughs> well, Razor has anything to do with it. <laughs> no, but it's... simple results are not publishable. <laughs> you know, we did a simple study analysis. and guess what? All simple words are pretty analysis. much the same. That wouldn't get published. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, let's. Uh, what we mean by simplicity is that it has to be complex enough to require <laughs> an investment of time and money, but uh, simpler than some other complex analysis, right? I see. Yeah, that is the idea. The less ink is on the paper, then the better the analysis. And it seems to me that there is a simpler solution. So right now, what he has is that words written on the right side are plus good, and words written on the left side are plus bad. I mean, obviously, right there, you know there's something wrong. You shouldn't have plus one thing and plus its opposite. It should be plus one and minus the other. So really, what we have is two categories of words in English, and they are either plus good or minus good. And these things have been around for ages. And so what we did was we unconsciously created the keyboard to kind of map that out so that we could have the most plus good words on the right side, since right is also plus good in general, and then put all the minus good words on the left side, since our left side is also minus good. There we go. There is a, a really big personal problem for you with that theory. Okay. Because I was about to point out that David Peterson is typed largely with the left hand, and then maybe maybe I was just a little too harsh with you in lies, damn lies, and linguistics because of that unconscious bias. But what you're saying now is that because you're such a pain in the ass, that's the reason most of the letters in your name are on the left side of the keyboard. <laughs> well, actually... You bring up a good point that I would like to bring up. And this is serious, if I can, uh, just for a minute. I mean, actually, really serious. Because you know what my favorite words are? They are those that can be typed entirely with the left hand on the keyboard. So, for example, take my first name, David. Most of the letters are with the left hand, but you have to hit I. I usually prefer to finish my emails with Dave entirely with the left hand. And you know why? It's so I can keep my right hand on the mouse. How do they miss this? I mean, this is especially important for gamers. If you can type an entire word or even an entire thought with just your left hand, you just gave yourself a tactical advantage over everybody else playing. In fact, a language that's written with only the left hand on a standard QWERTY keyboard would be vastly superior to any other natural or constructed language on the planet when it comes to gaming or writing for that matter. Can you imagine? Think about it. The fact there was even a, a guy back in the, in the 60s or 70s that proposed a type of keyboard this way. Can you imagine if you could type everything with just one hand and just your left hand so that the entire time your right hand was on the mouse, you can go wherever it wanted, and with your left hand, you are typing out everything you need to be able to type out. So I personally, I hate the right side of the keyboard. It's my least favorite side. And when I'm doing stuff, I will often have the actual experience of, oh, okay, I have to bring up my right hand because I actually need it for some stupid vowels. And it's annoying. My left hand is always on the left side of the keyboard. So not only do I think that these guys are just a bunch of crackpots, but they've gotten the complete opposite result that they should have gotten, or at least from new millennials like me. 
<laughs> so I have two important comments to make there. First, a practical one for you. There are things called cording keyboards. They're only like five keys, and you type chords of oh, yeah. multiple keys at once. And so you actually can do the whole alphabet with one hand. So you could get yourself one of those for your gaming situation. The other one is my brain made that conversation much more interesting than what you actually <laughs> said, though less family friendly, because you said you like to have your left hand on the keyboard so you can keep your right hand on your, <laughs> and I didn't fill it in with mouse. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, In a completely different direction, I I would also point out that another issue not dealt with in the study was the semantic valence of words that cannot be typed at all, Mm. of which there's a potentially unlimited set. (laughs) Are those... What proportion of those words are positive and what proportion are negative? And among the ones that are positive, is it primarily because uh, among the two areas of the keyboard that they're not on, the left one is primary? Or is it because of the two areas that they're not on, the left is secondary? I mean, you would need to know that. (laughs) (laughs) So I understand the idea that that you want to have a countably infinite number of words that can't be typed. I think we could reduce the set, maybe a little more tractable to study if you reduce the set to words that cannot be typed but nonetheless appear in print. No, 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 no. You don't understand richness of the keyboard. <laughs> well, no. So- the, ideal, the ideal sort of keyboard in underlying mental space is infinitely large and it has infinite number of keys on it. But it has to map onto a real keyboard that has limitations. Okay? And if it's an Apple keyboard, it will have more limitations. So... No, it has fewer limitations. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Do you know what the option key is for? Yeah, it's it's oh. much better. I don't yeah. know how you guys do things with your Windows keyboards. Yeah. Because my Apple keyboards are much smaller, and it's too small for my hands, and so I can't do much with it. Mm-hmm. So in my internal frame of reference, it's more limited, and that's the one that counts. You know what they say, big hands, big mouse. <laughs> Okay, Trey. Yes. I want you to be prepared to cut this if you think it's going over the line. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. advice to Kyle Jasmine and Daniel Casasanto because I know you're listening guys you're new to this whole in the spotlight thing so I'm going to give you some advice never counterattack just don't do it you saw what happened to Coolio after he attacked Weird Al Yankovic for parodying his song who's Coolio you ask exactly <laughs> all right up next we've got something new but first a word from our sponsor are you too busy to write your dissertation our files contain hundreds of dissertations from every possible subfield of linguistics all so boring that not even the original committees read them, so there's no danger that anyone will know it isn't yours. And all of the original authors have their degrees, so you're safe on that account too. For more information, contact Max PhD Dissertations. And we're back. We learned recently that Trey read a book. A word book, no less, not a picture book. The book is Babel No More, The Search for the World's Most Extraordinary Language Learners by Michael Erard. And in the time-honored tradition of speculative grammarian, we shall pass the speaking knife to Trey, and he'll tell us what he thought. Effendi. First of all, the title of the book is Babel No More, but uh, thanks for trying. (laughs) 
as is all the Vogue these days, this book has a long subtitle, uh, The Search for the World's Most Extraordinary Language Learners. I think it needs a sub-subtitle, namely, Common Sense, You Should Maybe Use It. The book is about hyperpolyglots, uh, those people who speak six or more, or maybe it's 11 or more languages. Uh, the author started off with six and then found out that was, while well, it was clearly poly, it wasn't quite hyper enough, so the limit got bumped up to 11. I think this may be a veiled allusion to Spinal Tap, which would make everything make a little more sense. <laughs> anyway, well, the book plays up the mystery of historical hyperpolyglots because, of course, we can never truly know. The conclusions it comes to regarding both historical and modern hyperpolyglots is pretty much the same. There's a lot of hyping and not really so much glotting, uh, though the author can't come out and say that too explicitly since it would make the book a lot less sensational and reduce sales, of course. Ultimately, like trying to differentiate between the definition of a language and the definition of a dialect, there's a lot of philosophical wrangling over what it means to, quote, speak a language. Some hyperpolyglots are only interested in reading and writing and don't speak the language that they study at all. Most will admit that they can only have so many languages active at a time, and it takes time to defrost a language. Some people wildly overstate their abilities and have been embarrassed on national TV by claiming to be fluent and then not being able to answer a simple question like, hi, how are you, in a language they say they're fluent in. The, quote, real hyperpolyglots seem to be people with an obsessive urge to study multiple languages for hours and hours a day. Basically, they don't have any special linguistic powers, just a high tolerance for boring, repetitious drills. And unlike multilinguals, most aren't interested in the people or culture associated with the language that they're studying. So as with anything else, if a claim seems to be too good to be true, it probably is. Thanks for that, Trey. We will now open the floor to questions. Uh, question number one. So you're a linguist. How many languages do you speak? Uh, 3.14159. <laughs> so in the book, was there any one person that was a standout that, that actually seemed to back up the claim and really spoke a fair number of languages? There were a couple people. They you know, clearly had studied a lot and were reasonably fluent in, in a fairly impressive number of languages. There was an international competition that was held several times, and they actually had native speakers, or as near as they could get to native speakers, for all the languages that were claimed by the people who were competing, right? So mm. if you said you spoke French and German and, and Hungarian, they would have you talk to three different people who did, in fact, speak French and German and Hungarian and grade you. And so those people, you know, there were people who did, you know, surprisingly well for what you would think someone could really do with that. But they're all, you know, sort of that OCD, their brains must substitute the boring repetitious drill with a more fun activity. <laughs> you know, while they're looking at the cards, they must, in their mind, imagine doing something much more entertaining, like looking at the cards on a roller coaster or something to be able to do it for hours and hours and hours. It basically is a full-time job. Wow. So I feel much Was better there... about only being able to speak 3.14159 languages. <laughs> Was there any discussion of the effect of, of fairly closely related languages? I mean, if you yeah. if you show me two people that know four languages, each know four languages, and one of them is Italian and Spanish and French and Portuguese, the other is Italian, Hungarian, Inuit, and Kalkatungu or something. <laughs> yeah, it, right. there's a qualitative difference there. Sure, sure. There's the one guy who is well known in the hyperpolyglot community, and he's sort of a controversial figure. He says that he really knows two language families really well. And so he studied a lot of Germanic languages and a lot of Romance languages. And he's not really actually interested in speaking. He's interested in must being able to read. I've actually personally had the bizarre experience of reading Catalan and not knowing what language it was, but still being able to understand it because yeah. I studied Spanish mm -hmm. and French and a, and a touch of Italian. And it's like, you know, my brain is going, this word's in Spanish, this word's in French, this word's in Italian. And it's like, that whole sentence made sense, and I don't know what language this is. <laughs> I can imagine looking at, for example, German and Dutch, coming at it from the perspective not of, I'm really focusing on learning German and Dutch, but I'm really focusing on learning the differences between German and Dutch. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. That reminds me of an interesting anecdote sort of related to that. I had a professor at Rice who was a Latin scholar, and he would sometimes speak to people who spoke Spanish, and he was very slow and kind of halting. And the, and the theory was that he was actually taking Latin and then playing all the sound changes into Spanish. And so he was thinking <laughs> in Latin and then speaking in Spanish. And I could see, you know, you study enough romance languages, and certainly for reading comprehension, they're all pretty much the same at some point. Yeah. <laughs> So did this book discuss the difference between people who had natural exposure to large numbers of languages and people who went out to study them? No. Like I said, they didn't really compare the hyperpolyglots to people who were really multilingual, and that was a big distinction yeah. that I think was pretty yeah. much omitted. There may have been some discussion of it, but it wasn't a major point of the book. And it'd be much more interesting to see how people organize, you know, people who grow up speaking three, four, or five languages, um, mm -hmm. you know, how they organize information, how, how easy it is for them to learn another language. I don't know for the people who are really multilingual, how often the languages they speak are related, right? Mm -hmm. And so I can imagine someone, if you spoke, you know, Catalan and Spanish, you might develop sort of your, your romance language learning abilities incidentally. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so to sum up, if I may, uh, linguists speak a lot of languages and Eskimo has a thousand words for snow because Eskimos live in snow. So uh, thanks very much, Trey. <laughs> Uh, well, that's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we reveal which facts presented in today's podcast are actually true. Thanks for listening. The Canadian raising is triggered by peak frames. I think north of North Dakota would either be Saskatchewan or Manitoba. Did you just... <laughs> I don't oh. think we've ever done retakes because no. that oh, would good. make okay. it sound professional in some yes. way. We're like Ed Wood here. I mean, first take is the best take. The 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 and then we will see on which foot the other shoe is put. Get ready for me to step on your toes, because that's going to happen. Has anybody else read this book? No, come on, it's a book. So I can I can easily imagine. We're doing the point two second thing, I think. The vocal fry I tend to notice is the stuff that gets associated with that kind of intonation contour, like someone's quacking. First time I ever heard a Kardashian speak. What? Damn it. That was good.